five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a lift. Hello, space enthusiasts. We are having a slightly different episode this week. Partly inspired by my conversation with Erwind when I was a guest on his Terror Watch Space podcast a couple of weeks ago. By the way, if you haven't seen that yet, um, have a listen. It's a great episode. I came to think that it would be valuable if I do an occasional episode with a kind of teaching on a space-related topic. Nothing too dense, just a half-hour introduction to a topic to give you a taster. And then, of course, you can decide to go deeper from there if you liked it. The first topic today's is an overview of commercial activities in and around space. All the different types of business models that people pursue to make money with space-related activities. Now, I think this is a very useful topic, as it also sets the stage for most of the other conversations on this podcast, which are typically, although not always, with space entrepreneurs who are pursuing one of those commercial activities in and around space. As always, here are a couple of quick messages about our partners in this podcast, and then I'll be right back to talk about commercial activities in space. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only, and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by Nanoavionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with their CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, but I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Okay, so commercial activities in and around space. Let's actually start with a quick definition. For our purposes, space-related activities are such that in some way directly depend on space. So for example, your business actually puts something into space, like a rocket or a satellite or a space station, or your business is directly dependent on customers in space. So think, for example, about somebody operating a satellite ground station. That ground station isn't in space, but that business wouldn't exist without customers who have satellites in space. Or your business is directly dependent on suppliers in space. And an obvious example here is people doing analysis of satellite imagery, even if they don't have their own satellites. Again, the business wouldn't exist without those suppliers who do have satellites in space. Now, a couple of comments here. Note that I did not say that your business needs to do something in space itself. So again, a company that analyzes satellite imagery would fit our definition even if they do not own any satellites themselves. Second, I used the words directly dependent a few times. And I meant that. That is because otherwise, if we start including things that are indirectly dependent on space, we're probably quickly going to end up including a good part of the overall economy in the definition of space-related activities. Now, that is because there are actually a lot of things that indirectly depend on space. Just think about how many activities you can think of that depend on things like satellite communications or global positioning, for example, the GPS system. We could actually do an entire episode just on this, things in our lives that depend on space. Maybe we should. But for now, back to today's episodes. 
activities in and around space and specifically commercial activities. Okay, so with our definition in hand, let's do some quick dives into a few key commercial activities. And let me be very clear that the following are really just that, quick dives, giving you a few bullets, so to say, on each activity. As you can imagine, we could talk for hours on each one of those activities. If you do want to learn a little bit more, I will give you a couple of additional information sources at the end of this episode. Let's start with launch and literally, I guess, the most visible of all space activities, um, colloquially, rocket companies. Why are launch companies seemingly on everyone's mind? Well, first of all, who doesn't like rockets, right? But more seriously, launch companies are the key infrastructure layer of the space economy. We can't do anything else in space without getting there. Right. Then, of course, there's the visible commercial success of the most famous launch company of them all, SpaceX. And that's probably why at my venture firm, E2MC, we have close to 200 or so launch startups in our database. But that sounds like a lot, right? Now, most of them probably only exist on paper, but maybe a few dozen or so actually are at various stages of developing and testing or even flying hardware. And a few commercial players have even reached orbit. SpaceX, of course, but also Rocket Lab from New Zealand, Astra, a US company which achieved orbit um, late 2020, and then in early 2021, Virgin Orbit with its air-launched rocket. Several other companies intend to try for orbit soon, probably starting with Firefly, another U US company. So launch is getting very competitive, as you can tell, especially what we call the small launch segment, smaller rockets, rockets that may launch maybe a few hundred kilograms or maybe a metric ton or a little bit more, too low of orbit that is, much smaller than, for example, the over 23 metric ton capacity of a SpaceX Falcon 9, let alone the capacity of a SpaceX Starship, which is north of 100 metric tons. And this actually brings up another interesting point about launch. We are now seeing a sort of bifurcation of ways of getting satellites, especially smaller ones, into space. One way is to put your satellite together with many other satellites of other customers onto a big rocket like the Falcon 9. That is now emerging as a formal business model and is typically called something like rideshare. That kind of ride will not leave you at your final destination. So you need to figure out how to get your satellite to your final destination by yourself. For example, by using your own onboard propulsion or by taking a connection flight with a space tug, which we shall talk about shortly as another business model. Ride shares will also not fly when you want, but when they are ready. And now another way to get your satellite to orbit is to use a small rocket that may carry at the extreme just your satellite. And that's in that way, so it's in a way it's a dedicated launch just for yourself. And that, of course, will take you to where you want to be. And by the way, also when you want to go there. As you can imagine, that second option is more expensive. You can basically think of rideshare as the equivalent of taking a bus and a dedicated small launch as the equivalent of taking an Uber or a traditional taxi. Now, whatever the option is, launch companies make money charging by mission. So, for example, the price for a SpaceX rideshare to low Earth orbit is around $5,000 a kilogram. A couple of other comments to finish up on the rockets business. Historically and arguably still today, it's a very capital intensive business and it has long development timelines. Things seem to be improving, but it still seems right to expect hundreds of millions of dollars of investment and at least a few years to get to orbit. It is also often a regulated business as many countries regard rocket technology as strategic, including for military purposes. So watch things like export controls. Okay, second business model, 
spacecraft and components. So rockets carry stuff, right? Sometimes people, astronauts or cosmonauts, and that's clearly very exciting. But most of the time, it will be satellites. The more generic term here being spacecraft, which also includes things like capsules or space stations. And of course, uh, building spacecrafts and their components is a business and by itself. You can participate in that business in various ways. You can, of course, build an entire satellite. And there are many companies doing that. Traditional ones like, for example, Airbus and Thales Alenia Space in Europe, or Lockheed and Boeing in the US, to mention just a few. There are also newer entrants. Uh, most focus on much smaller satellites. For example, the sponsor of this podcast, NanoAvionics, which started out as a company building CubeSats, but also others like Tyvek and Duracell, Berlin Space Technologies, and frankly, many others. If you build a full satellite, you also have the choice of doing the required subsystems and components of that satellite yourself. And that means you would be vertically integrated, or you can integrate the satellites from wholly or partly from components delivered by other suppliers. And that, of course, is yet another business. You can choose to focus just on certain subsystems, subsystems, for example, propulsion or solar arrays or attitude control, or even just individual components of the subsystems, say reaction wheels. There are lots of startups for all of these. As people expect the numbers, the number of satellites to increase dramatically, and, and all of the above is then potentially um, derived demand from the fact that satellites are increasing so much. A couple of comments. Um, this is a technical business, of course, and you better know how to operate at scale because if you do want to take advantage of that trend that the number of satellites is going to grow a lot, then of course you ultimately want to be able to supply just not just a few or a few dozen, say, um, of your components, but ideally hundreds or thousands. And that's a different type of scale and one that you know we haven't seen in the space business that much so far. Okay, on to satellite communications. And that's another one of the original space businesses. And still today, it's the biggest one if you look at uh, any breakdown of the space economy. And that's substantially thanks to the ongoing importance of satellite TV. Satellite TV is the traditional satellite communications business, but nowadays there's so much more. Let's continue with some of the other services. The most visible examples of satellite communication services are the proposed new broadband low-Earth orbit constellations, like SpaceX's Starlink, Amazon's Project Kuiper, OneWeb, and some others. These are constellations with at least hundreds and sometimes thousands of satellites, promising to connect virtually the entire world at high speed and high bandwidth. So you can do things like video calls or even gaming. Those constellations are very capital intensive. A different set of project focuses not on communicating with humans, between humans, but communications between machines and things, for example, remote wind turbines or containers or other things like that. The buzzword here, of course, being IoT or the Internet of Things. Communications here for IoT purposes are much more limited in terms of bandwidth, as you often only need a periodic, say, a daily message about the status or some status of the thing that you are monitoring. So again, you need much less bandwidth and the satellites can be smaller and the constellations can be smaller, but those constellations still typically have dozens of satellites and an investment in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Now, there are also some emerging um, satellite service business models, like for example, communication relays. Then of course, there's the whole equipment side of the satellite communications business. You need things like 
radios, antennas, user terminals, and that can be big business. Just think, for example, about the number of user terminals we may end up needing if satellite communications, especially the new constellations, really take off. There's some interesting trends as well. Uh, for example, many people are now bullish on so-called optical communications that use lasers rather than radio frequencies. And speaking of radio frequencies, again, satellite communications is also heavily regulated sectors with things like spectrum and landing rights that you may need for your business. On to the next sector, remote sensing, or sometimes called Earth observation. But remote sensing is the more general term, because you don't necessarily need to observe the Earth. It could be some other place you're observing, like the Moon, or even Mars, or even an asteroid, or some, some other place. This is another one of the original space applications, starting with spy satellites as early as the 1960s. And as you can imagine, that, that is a use case, spy satellites, that continues until today. But it's only one use case of many. There are ever more use cases proposed for satellite imagery, serving purposes for fields like insurance, agriculture, forestry, tourism, and many others. Technologically, you can use all sorts of sensors. It's not limited to, to optical, that is light in the visible range. You can have, for example, infrared sensors or hyperspectral sensors, or an active sensor like radar, specifically something called synthetic aperture radar. And that allows you to see at night or see through cloud cover. Now, there are a few different ways of engaging in the remote sensing business. You can be upstream or downstream or vertically integrated. Let's just quickly go through those. Upstream means you operate your own satellites that generate raw data, and then you sell that raw data to other people to, to use and to analyze. Downstream is the opposite. You do not operate your own satellites, but you buy the data from people who do, and you analyze that data for a specific use case and for ingestion by end customers who do not want to deal with raw data. So for example, you may analyze satellite imagery for insurance customers, and you analyze what you think the insurance customers are actually interested in. Because at the end of the day, insurance customers don't care that it's space data. They're just interested in having value-added data for their business. The third option, vertically integrated, and you guess that that's if you do both. So you own your satellites, and you also analyze the data they produce. In any event, you make money selling data, often on a subscription basis. Okay, space tourism. Now we're getting to some of the non-traditional businesses. Space tourism started in 2002 with the first flight of a paying passenger, Dennis Tito, on a Soyuz capsule and rocket to the International Space Station. Six more people flew in the 2000s in the same way, and then we had a break of a few years. Now it's always starting with several private missions planned later this year to the International Space Station, but also just using the SpaceX Crew Dragon as a free flyer without docking at the ISS. But these are expensive trips. The price package for an ISS trip, for example, offered by the US company Axiom Space is $55 million. But orbital space tourism is just one option. There are also so-called suborbital flights, where you basically go up and down without going into orbit. The two companies currently offering this are Virgin Galactic, with its air-launched spaceship that lands horizontally, and Blue Origin, Jeff Bezos' company, with a vertically-launched rocket that has a passenger capsule on top, which then separates from the rocket and uh, at the end lands using parachutes. In either case, you get a few minutes in space and microgravity, and the price tag for Virgin is around $250,000, and we do not know the price tag for Blue Origin yet. Neither company has flown paying passengers yet, but Blue Origin plans to do so on the 20th of July this year, and they're currently auctioning off that first seat. The bid right now is around $3 million. 
Lastly, there's sort of an entry-level product by a company called Space Perspective that E2MC has an investment in, where you will go to about a 20-mile altitude on a specially designed capsule that hangs underneath a stratospheric balloon for a few hours of cruise at the edge of space. Not technically in space because you're not high enough, but you will get a space-like view, and hence the name of the company, Space Perspective. You won't get microgravity. And that is about $125,000 a flight. All of those price tags seem very high for normal people for now. But do keep in mind that there's a fair number of wealthy people in the world. And in any event, there are more wealthy people than the number of very few seats which are currently available to get near or into space. So from a business perspective, the supply-demand balance at the moment looks rather good. Over time, over the years, Prices should become more accessible. And remember that other things, uh, for example, airline travel also started as very much as luxury products uh, back in the, in the 1950s. Our next um, activity in space is in-space manufacturing and, and experimentation. And like space tourism, this is another business that, that, that only really makes more sense now as the costs of accessing and operating in space have come down so much and continue to come down. With regard to manufacturing, there's actually a couple of different types of uh, businesses here. And they're both nascent. First, you can manufacture something in space for use right there in space. So without bringing it back to Earth, why, why would you want to do that? Well, maybe to save volume or mass, on even mass on, on, on rockets, which are by definition limited. So you may want to mm, construct a, and, and, and to some extent produce maybe 3D print parts of a big space station or a solar array or satellites right there in space. The other type of in-space manufacturing is to produce something in space for use on Earth. So you do bring back the product. And this is about using some of the special conditions found in space that allow you to do something that is either hard or maybe even impossible to do on Earth. So for example, you can use the microgravity in space to achieve better crystallization in three, dimension, in three dimensions. The main use cases of um, microgravity manufacturing basically fall into two main categories. It's uh, advanced materials and life sciences. Now, how can you participate in, in that business, manufacturing experimentation? Well, you can be an operator of an in-space platform for manufacturing and experimentation. At the moment, we are occasionally using the ISS for small-scale manufacturing. But for various reasons, the ISS is not an ideal platform. It was never designed as a dedicated manufacturing platform. By the way, we can also divide the platform aspect roughly into, into two parts, an outer layer, some kind of a spacecraft, like for example, the ISS, and an inner layer, which is actually a, a payload where the actual manufacturing takes place. So it could be, for example, a special bioreactor if you're producing a life sciences product. Another model is you can be the company that has figured out the process to manufacture something interesting in space, but you're happy to use somebody else's platform to do that. Um, thirdly, some companies make a business out of sort of connecting the two, offering a service where if you want to conduct experimentation on a factoring space, that company arranges everything for you. It, it finds all of the necessary suppliers, there's all of the necessary paperwork and so forth. And lastly, of course, again, you can be a vertically integrated company. Again, this is a very young and nascent business, but there's now a few startups and the potential end markets could be very, very large. Next activity is a class of um, businesses which are called Orbit Services. And Orbit Services, as the name suggests, is where your business provides a service right in space. 
And this includes services like, for example, connecting flights in space. So we already touched upon this when we talked about ride shares and, and the launch business. And this is where you bring a customer spacecraft from one place to another. The specialized vehicles doing that are called space tugs, like tugboats on Earth. Um, another service is satellite life extension. Satellites' life is limited, among other things, by the amount of fuel it carries. When the fuel runs out, there are no ways to extend a satellite's life. One way is to attach another spacecraft as a kind of new external propulsion system. And that has already happened and continues to happen. And this also brings us to another option to extend a satellite life, which is in-orbit refueling, which is exactly what the name implies. And there are some companies working on that. Then there's other companies which propose to remove space debris, which many people see as an increasing problem. But for all of the things I just mentioned, there's now a number of startups pursuing the respective business model. And all of those are typically paid by, by mission. Except the, the refueling, which, as you can imagine, is, is, is paid by um, the amount of fuel. It's still unclear, I would say, in my opinion, how this entire orbit services market will play out. Uh, needless to say, I would like to point out that, that all of these businesses, it's that what I would basically call derivative businesses. You are dependent on there being a lot of in-space activity to begin with in order for the orbit services market to exist. Okay, finally because I don't want this episode, episode to be too long. Let's go through a garden variety of other potential businesses in no particular order or otherwise known as the kitchen sink. So global navigation or GNSS, this is obviously an important existing business. And there are now startups proposing to put up entirely new global navigation or GNSS systems that are more accurate and more secure than the existing ones. Mission as a service, as the name implies, are companies that plan an entire mission for you. And there are extensions of that, for example, Constellation as a service. Spaceports, yes, most spaceports are government-owned, but they are now private spaceport startups. In-space computation and data storage, potentially very interesting. You can imagine that you know space has, just by virtue of being detached from everything else, um, has some interesting use cases for um, ultra-secure data storage. Space-based solar power, the idea has been around for a long time, but um, thanks to current trends and again, the cost decreases, it's probably something that starts increasingly making sense now. Space resources, for example, on the moon or um, asteroid mining, again, the idea has been around, but again, maybe it starts making more sense now that the costs are coming down a lot. And, and speaking of the moon, a whole lot of potential businesses exist around the moon, including, of course, transport to and from the moon, what we call cislunar transport, but also many of the categories of businesses we already talked about, remote sensing or satellite communications or navigation, they could also happen on the moon. And a last category I want to mention as it's fun is space entertainment. And there are now plans for several TV and movie productions in space. You probably heard about Tom Cruise, and just today we had an announcement for a UFC-style uh, fighting reality show in space, or at least a project of that. I could mention many more examples, but I think you hopefully already got a good idea of what is going on in and around space in terms of commercial activities. By the way, I was refraining from mentioning size estimates, the various business activities, as arguably right now, pretty much everything is in flux and there's diverging opinions. And we will probably need a whole episode just focused on size projections to treat that topic remotely fairly. Suffice to say that the entire space economy is now expected to grow to trillions of dollars 
over the next decades from a few hundred billion dollars currently. But by the way, at my venture firm E2MC, we also developed a simple infographic showing almost all these activities on one easy, hopefully easy to understand page. And the link to that infographic is in the episode notes. Now, lastly, I did promise some additional information sources. First, just keep listening to this podcast because usually I have one and a half, uh, half an hour, 45 minutes, one hour conversations with space entrepreneurs. And they, of course, dive into more detail on their specific businesses. And you can also go, go back and look at some of the episodes already out there because we pretty much have an episode touching on each of these businesses. So, for example, for launch, we have Rocket Factory Augsburg from Germany. For satellite communications, we have uh, Skylum from the United States, which is doing a, a relay business. For orbit services, we have uh, OrbitFab, which proposes to do in-space refueling. For space tourism, we have the Space Perspective with its stratospheric balloons. For satellite manufacturing, we have our sponsors, NanoAvionics, and, and many others. Just take a look at the existing episode list. Now, Another information source for you, if you prefer something more structured, you can check out my online course called Space Entrepreneurship 101 on udemy.com, where I'll take you through all major space business segments over a total of about three hours of lectures, and you even get a certificate at the end. And I also talk about um, general trends in space and, um, and some sort of tips how to become a space entrepreneur and think about developing and pitching a business. And the link is also in the episode notes. In the same vein, you may enjoy an introductory book on space business that I released late last year. Unfortunately, it's only available in German for now, but we're working on translating it into other languages this year. Again, the link is in the episode notes. So I hope this was a useful overview, whether you are a potential entrepreneur in space, a potential space investor, or you're just generally curious about what is happening in space business. As you could hopefully see, a lot is happening. So if you're interested in getting involved in space business, there's a lot going on. Go for it. Thanks. Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform, such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash space business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, Check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.